Good morning. Welcome to Tomball Bible. Uh, this is the last time I get to say this, and so I'm going to enjoy it. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. There are a number of ways uh, you can close out any assignment. Some people like to drop the mic and walk away. Other people will wonder why you're damaging quality sound equipment. And since I'm a member here and I continue to give, I don't want to do that. Um, Other times you could make jokes and wisecracks and uh, all of the sarcastic comments that you wanted to say, but in God's grace didn't. Uh, But I'll still be around. And as you heard, May 1st, uh, the staff will get the last word. So I want to be cautious there as well. I have uh, three goals this morning. The first may sound quite obvious. My goal is to get through this. And that may be harder than it sounds. Uh, We came to Tomball Bible Church as members, February 2007, uh, dinged up. And this church has been good to us. You've helped raise our children. In God's grace, we added three to the two babies we had when we got here. You taught us to love the local church again. And we are eternally grateful. So, when I say getting through this is a goal, that's a relatively big one. As simple as it may sound. Beyond that, it's my prayer as always that when we stand here on this pulpit with the Word of God, that we'd faithfully and accurately teach it. It would be a workman unashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And third, my hope, and this one's entirely out of my hands, is that God in His might and power and strength through His Spirit would do something in each of us to transform us. And that's His work. And so I want us to pray, to pray together, and ask God to open the Word to us and our hearts to His Word, that we would be different leaving this place today than the way we came. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the people of Townball Bible Church. I thank You for their friendship and patience towards me. Thank you for their faithfulness towards you in response to your word. I look back on six years as a senior pastor, nine years as a part of this body, and I'm thankful for your steadfastness. And I'm optimistic and hopeful for the future. And so I pray at this moment that you would empower and equip each of us to move forward with faithfulness, to be steadfast in your calling to us. And as we open your word today, your spirit would move freely in this place and that our hearts would be open to his leading. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that that we do here as the norm is that we work through a book of the Bible. If you're new, you'll kind of get the sense that that's the standard. We do other things as well. Uh, Sometimes we'll take, take shorter chunks of scripture and dig into them. But our pattern is simply to work through the scriptures. And that's helpful in many cases uh, because you don't wake up each Monday as the pastor and wonder what are we going to preach this next week. You have a plan. And we have an opportunity each week to walk through a section of Scripture and develop its deeper, richer meaning as we see all of it together. Um, And so this morning I I come with an assignment of a particular passage of Scripture. And I think uh, as we set this plan before some of the decisions in front of us uh, were made, I couldn't have chosen a better one. 
In fact, had I had a moment to pick one, uh, these six verses of Scripture probably would have been the verses I would have chosen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we find ourselves in verse 7. And I want to walk you through where we've been thus far because it's important. We've seen the beginning as Paul just laid out the need for a steadfast hope in Christ. And how that hope would empower them in the midst of affliction and persecution. And the need for ministries and lives of integrity as we walk through a world that doesn't believe the good news of the gospel. And is not quick to embrace Christ. We saw last week as we dug in the the connection of our lives and the believability of the gospel and the word of God. This week we want to go a little further with that. Paul looks back on his time in Thessalonica and his ministry to the Thessalonians and he lays out what I think for us is a pattern and, and what the fundamentals of ministry are. And when I say the fundamentals of ministry, I don't mean a seminary course, pastoral ministry 101. What, what, what I mean is that each of us called as ministers of the gospel, gifted and empowered by the Holy Spirit, given a mission to accomplish, we say it here at Tomball Bible Church, to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. That's why we're here and that's the ministry that God has given us, all in different ways and in different settings. And the fundamentals of how gospel ministry works are laid out with this compelling pattern from the life and ministry of Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And so I want us to begin in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. As Paul looks back on his days there, he says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are our witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own glorious kingdom. Paul lays out what I think is the essence of how Christian ministry and this whole discipleship effort works. He, he, he says two things, and we'll start with the motivation, the reason he does that. He says, you had become very dear to us. We loved you. When Paul says we, he's talking about Paul and Timothy, some of the other people that traveled with him and, and their ministry there and his fondness for them. He says, we were affectionately desirous, which is to mean we loved you. And we wanted God's best for you. And because of that motive, because of a sincere motive of love and desiring to see God's best for you, we did two things. We gave you two things. The very word of God, the truth, and ourselves. And what Paul lays out here is the fundamentals of how ministry works is that it's two things given in concert with one another. We're going to give you the very word of God, the truth, and we're going to give you us. 
and of all of our failings, with all of our weaknesses and imperfections, but with the obvious fingerprints of God and His Spirit working within us. We're going to give you these things. We're going to pour out the Word of God and we're going to pour out our very lives in front of you. And Paul lays out, this is how ministry works. At other times in Paul's ministry, he will meet with people and reflect on his time there. The church in Ephesus represents the longest assignment Paul had anywhere, which was around two years. After his ministry there, when he's swinging back by, he had the elders of the church come and meet him near Miletus on the coast. And he gave to them kind of his final words, recounting his ministry. And if Acts chapter 20 records that in verse 19. And I want you to see the parallel with how he speaks to the church in Thessalonica. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul will go back to his ministry there in Ephesus and you'll see a refrain that is consistent with what he says to the Thessalonian church. He said, you, you know us, you lived with us, you saw our pattern of life, and you know that we taught you the word of God. This is incredibly important as we consider how ministry operates, is that it's the combination of boldly proclaiming the Word of God in a relationship of love and transparency. Paul doesn't say, I was an exceptional Bible teacher, but I was detached. I was separate from you. I didn't want you knowing too much about me. I didn't want you to have too much insight into me. I didn't want you to know my weaknesses and my shortcomings. Paul, Paul doesn't set that distance between him and the people that he preach, preaches the word of God to. Conversely, some of us are tempted to get to know people and care for them and become friends with them and never let the truth of God interject into the relationship. Paul says, I wasn't willing to do that either. You'll note that Paul, when he describes his teaching ministry, he was one of boldness. He says earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in Acts 20, what we just read, he says, I didn't shrink back. I didn't pull away and say that that truth isn't convenient for the moment. So I'm not going to address it. Paul says, I gave you whatever you needed from the Word of God. And he'll say, my hands are clean of your blood. Meaning, if you reject the gospel, that's between you and the Lord. But I've done my job. When Paul looks back on his ministry and he gives us a pattern to move forward from, he gives us this combination of truth and life that ultimately biblically focused gospel ministry is rooted in life. Death and resurrection of Jesus and is led by the Spirit of God as we try to make fruitful disciples. And this process involves the Word of God being taught and being made evident in the lives of the men and women who teach it. And I don't just mean people who stand on this platform or lead small groups in Sunday school, but every Christian who has the Word of God has been entrusted with the very words of God and God expects that they would communicate it in relational settings, in friendships, over lunches. 
Wherever they go, while kids play at the playground, while the neighborhood kids come into your backyard at Neighborhood Bible Club, that all of those things are avenues and venues in which every one of us becomes messengers of the good news of Jesus. That while we were yet sinners, God, who is rich in mercy, sent his only son to die in our place and for our sin, and that he paid the penalty in full and rose again so that we, through faith in him, can be sons and daughters of God. That that's the good news. And then all of these settings that we find ourselves in, we have the opportunity to proclaim that truth. But it's not just words, it's words accompanied with our lives. If you were here last week, you, you saw from 2 Timothy chapter 3, chapter 3.16 is this famous verse for people in church that testifies to the inspiration of the Bible and says all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But you back up and you find in verse 14, he says, you stick to the Scriptures because you know from whom you learned it. That when Paul confronts the issue of the believability of the Word of God, he doesn't roll out a bunch of scientific arguments and complicated apologetics. He he says, you know me. And you know your mom and your grandmother. And you know that they were faithful to the Word of God. And you saw God faithful to His promises in their lives. You can trust the Word, not because of a fancy argument, but because of a life lived faithfully to it. Paul's going to say this combination of truth and life is what makes the Word of God believable. Ultimately, when we preach the Gospel, we preach the Gospel of God's victory over sin through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Not simply one of forgiveness and so some victory in the future, but an imminent and present victory as the Spirit of God transforms us. So to tell that story in the context of a life that's being transformed now is believable. Because I can see the power of the risen Christ in the lives of people who have put to death an old way of life. And as Jesus was raised, have embraced a new life to the glory of God the Father. Because believable, this is how ministry works. This is how disciples are made. Paul says we're not guys on a podcast who are distant from you preaching. We were men you knew. Men you served alongside. And in that, we gave you the word of God without backing down and we gave you us without regret. Paul will then go on to describe the relationships that he had. So not just you you knew us, but he's going to share the way he approached them and how they related at different times in their spiritual development. You see this in chapter 2, verse 7, back in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her own children. We talked about this a bit last week. I've always been a fan of the Apostle Paul. If you uh, ever do the personality assessments, you've got, was it the the lion, uh, the beaver, the otter, and the Labrador? You've seen that one. Paul is is pure lion. He's an entrepreneurial, self-starter, hard-charging type A guy. So when Paul says we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, this is out of Paul's wheelhouse. And yet, it's true of his relationship with them. 
couple things you can note is that this is intimate imagery. I don't think there's anything more intimate and, and more close than the relationship, not just of a mother with her child, but a mother who is nursing her infant. And Paul uses that imagery to depict it. So it's one that depicts two things, tenderness and nurture. Paul says, our relationship with you was gentle in that way. Where we were tender towards you in order to nurture you. And we know that this is the work of the Spirit of God in Paul. I think it's important to understand that this isn't the only time Paul will use this imagery of giving them milk. You'll see it in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5. He, he describes milk as the elementary or basic teachings of the gospel. So he's not only saying how he ministered, but what he did was sharing with them the very words of God so that they were rooted and grounded in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews, it's a correction that they haven't grown beyond infancy. But you begin to understand when Paul says that we were with you, gentle like nursing mothers, that he's describing a tender, nurturing ministry. But the nurture comes through the teaching of the word of God and the application of the gospel message. So out of the gates, we see that this is a close relationship. We were with you like a nursing mother. He's going to continue and and say at other times, our relationship was different. You'll see this in verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are our witness, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. So he says we uh, we were with you in tender nurture like a nursing mother with her infant. And we were with you as brothers. As co-laborers working with you that we might set an example for you. And and, I appreciate Paul when we talk about a life of integrity that he is so comfortable saying you remember how we lived before you. There's not a shred of this do as, as I say and not as I do mentality. Paul says you remember us our way of life with you. It's the same thing he says to the Ephesian elders, is you remember how we lived among you from the first day we set foot in the region. He's going to describe beyond that what they need to understand about him. He's going to say that we were righteous and upright, meaning we walked faithfully in our morality and blameless in our conduct towards you, never desiring to extort anything from you or to take anything away from you. Rather, we were there to work alongside you and to give you the gospel of God. And he'll point out his labor and toil while he's among them. That Paul had a a job making and selling tents and he did that to provide for himself And he preached the gospel. And Paul says, we we never took anything from you because we didn't want to be a burden to you. And we set an example. One of the issues that the Thessalonian church was facing, if you continue to read Paul's writing to them, was this kind of over-expectancy of the return of Christ. Because of that, many of them had just quit their jobs and were freeloading, waiting on Jesus to come back. We have people doing that. They're just waiting for Bernie to get elected. That wasn't in the notes. It just seemed appropriate. They had an expectation that they didn't need their jobs, that Jesus was going to show up and fix everything for them. Because of that, uh, other people were working and providing for everyone. And Paul's going to go, you guys remember that I was with you and I worked hard. I worked hard. And that's the example you should follow. So, So what Paul says, as a brother, we gave you an example the way an older brother should. We gave you an example. 
You saw our labor. You saw our faithfulness. You saw not only our commitment to you, the people, but to our work and our profession. And you should emulate that. You should follow the lead of your older brother. Paul will then provide a third relationship that is an example and describes the way they ministered among them in verses 9 through 10. He says, you remember, excuse me, in verses 11 through 12. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says, first, we were with you like a nursing mother with gentle and tender nurture. We were with you as brothers, setting an example for you to follow, working alongside you. And we were with you like a father with his sons. Now, the father relationship, I think, bears a little bit of digging. There's a couple things I think, reasons I think it's important in Paul's ministry is that Paul's ministry was, was predominantly in a lot of the cities to people who had converted from pagan religions. And so if you had grown up in a Jewish household, in a reasonably devoted home, you would have had a father that treated your mother with dignity, that went and worked hard. Even though you might have been poor, he worked and he came home and he taught his children the words of God and he corrected them when they were out of line. That would have been the kind of example if you had been raised in the average Jewish home in the first century, you probably would have seen from your father. But if you came from a pagan home in one of the Greek or Roman cities, you would have had a decidedly different experience. Alcoholism and ancient drug abuse and infidelity and patterns of divorce were all common, even to the point that in some of the cities, sexual immorality was not only okayed, but was considered religious devotion. So the need for godly fathering was acute in most of these cities. Even in Paul's relationship with Timothy, when you read Timothy's story as Paul lays it out in First and Second Timothy, you'll find that Timothy was raised by his mother and grandmother, and Paul is functionally his father. I think this bears some examination. Paul's going to describe the ministry of a father in the life of a child as being an accurate way that he ministered to them. And there's a few things he says that they did. He said, we exhorted you. And we don't use that word every day. It's a Greek term, parakaleo, which is two words slammed together. Para, which means alongside, and kaleo, which is to call. He says, like, like a father calls his son to come alongside him, we ministered to you. When Paul says this, I've got to think that as a, as a young man raised in the Jewish faith, that he goes back to God's words to fathers in Deuteronomy and says, I want you to teach these things to your children as you walk along the road and as you work with one another. He, he says that this father-son relationship is one where, where you say, come alongside me. And you call them so that they can learn, so that they can do what their father is doing. And it's not only an invitation to come, but it's an invitation to participate in the work of your father. We had that growing up a lot. My dad did a lot of things. He worked in the oil field, drilled oil wells. We ran a small farm more than anything so my dad could teach us hard work. And dad would say Saturday mornings about 6.30, come on, son. And you would go with dad. And you would learn how to repair fences, 
how to tend cattle, a number of things. And that's how you learn. You learn because your father would say, come alongside me. And so that's what Paul says. He said, I, I just called you to come with me and to follow my way of life. In addition to that, he says, I encouraged you. We lifted up and comforted each of you. And the whole goal, he said, was to charge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Here's what Paul does for them, and it's ultimately what we expect fathers to do for their children. Paul calls them to a higher standard. He doesn't allow them to just kind of stay down here in immaturity. He wants to strengthen them and kind of force them, if necessary, to grow up into fruitfulness and faithfulness. But he doesn't just set a high standard for his children and then walk away. That's not what a good father does. He says, we encouraged you and comforted you. Which is to say, we, we set a high standard and then we attempted to lift you up so that you could meet it. Through example and encouragement and commitment and teaching and all the things necessary for you to not only see the standard of the calling that you have in Christ, but by the Spirit's help to attain it, to reach for it and to grow towards maturity. Paul showed them how to do what God had called them to do. A few observations about these relationships, this, this mother with her infant and this brother working alongside his brothers and this father encouraging and lifting up his children. And they're very different relationships with different goals. And they're all useful at different moments in someone's spiritual progression. Paul doesn't chastise the Thessalonian church that, that he needed to treat them with tenderness and gentleness, giving them milk the way a nursing mother does. But if they had stayed there like the Corinthian church, still in their infancy, he would have corrected that. Because as he said before, he's a father who wants to raise the bar and help his children attain it. So these relationships are different and they're appropriate at given moments. There's a time that nurture and tenderness is necessary in our spiritual development. There's a time that we need an example and camaraderie from a brother in our Christian walk. And there are times that we need someone in a fatherly role to exhort and encourage us. To set a standard and give us the charge and then to help us strive for it. We, we need those things and because we each need those things, God has called each of us at times in our life to be those things for someone else so that they can grow into faithfulness and maturity. So these are all necessary, but that said, um, these interactions will not be natural to all of us all the time. I resonate with what I think Paul's personality might have been when he says we were tender and gentle among you like a nursing mother. Because for me, that's a struggle. You guys have blessed me in that way. One of the blessings of being your pastor over the years has been that, that many of you have allowed me into the most difficult moments of your lives. To pray with you and to sit with you. And I'm going to be honest, sometimes I didn't know what to say. And those are the moments that you didn't hear me say anything. There have been moments that I have loved my vision for Tomball Bible Church more than the people of Tomball Bible Church. And God has been gracious to allow me to repent of that. And you have been gracious to forgive me of that. This is not natural for me, this tenderness. I don't think the only other thing that has tenderized and softened me has been being a daddy to little girls, which takes a hold on different thing. But God has used you in that way, and I have struggled there. At times it's, it's easy for me to be 
Uh, the brothers say, come work with me. It's easy for me to encourage and charge and exhort. But I thank you in that. I thank you that that while the nurturing side of ministry did not come natural to me, that you were patient with me while I fumbled around, not knowing what to do, and that you helped me grow in that. In Romans chapter 12, the scriptures say, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And you have allowed me graciously into your rejoicing and your mourning. I'm thankful. The same is true for each of us. Some of our interactions will just fit. And other times we'll walk into a relationship with someone that we desperately want to see walk faithfully with Christ. And what will be required of us in the moment is something we don't bring to the table. That's why I love the Apostle Paul using phrases like, I labor and toil with all the power and energy that he supplies. And that when I am weak, He is strong. Paul's keenly aware of his own weakness. And and that understanding of our limitations is a necessary step for the Spirit of God to empower us for the moment. And so for you, as you're walking into settings where where, where there's situations and maybe someone needs that that fatherly or, or, or motherly affection, whatever they need, or they need a brother, and that may not be natural to you if you will own your weakness. And look to the Lord. He'll empower you to do what's necessary in the moment. And I would tell you this. To be on the lookout for people that will fulfill those relationships in your lives as well. So that you will grow. These are relationships that we need. This also gives us an important note about how discipleship works. Be remiss if I didn't go to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 on my last sermon as the pastor here. And so I want us to turn there. I want you to see something. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we'll just set this up briefly. This is Jesus talking. And this is a command from Jesus. These are not suggestions from a friend. These are commands from the king, the one who has all power and authority given from the father. His central command is to go and make disciples. That's the command that becomes the centerpiece of Paul's life that led him into these relationships with these people, giving them truth in life, relating to them, sometimes in tenderness as a mother, sometimes as an example, as a brother, and other times with exhortation as a father. But but that's why he's doing these things. And these are ultimately not suggestions. And what I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 does for us is fill in what Matthew 28 looks like when we embrace it. What does it mean to teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you? Well, well, it's not a lecture hall. It's not podcasting from a remote location. It's not arguing about theology on Facebook. This is person-to-person, life-to-life, close-quarters combat. You and me and the Word of God in the midst of the ugliness of life, the, the, the difficulties of this bumpy road that we have walking 
following Christ in the midst of this world. Because it is up close and because it is gritty, because it isn't sanitized, it's guaranteed to cost you something. Guaranteed. If you're going to engage deeply in the life of someone else, if you're going to let them see you like Paul did with the Thessalonian church, and if you're going to not only share with them your victories, but your failures, your strengths and your weakness and God's goodness in spite of that, if you're going to be that kind of leader and transparent in the lives of other people, and you're going to begin to minister to them with all of their junk, there is going to be a number of things that come in the way. There are going to be inconveniences and difficulties. People will call you at odd times of the night when you have other things you would rather be doing and they're going to have a problem and their life falling apart will never be convenient for your schedule. Because one of the things I've learned is that for some reason, people don't consult my calendar before their world blows up. And they don't consult yours either. So if you're going to get into this, if you're saying, I'm going to make disciples, I'm going to do this truth and life thing, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you sleep. It's going to add a burden to your life. Paul, when he lists the difficulties he's gone through, he talks about being beaten and shipwrecked. And then he says, and on top of that, the burden I carry for you. You're going to take on that burden. It's going to cost you something. There'll be nights that you don't rest well. There'll be hours spent in prayer. There'll be early mornings to meet with someone. There'll be ball games that you might not go to, shows that you might not watch, a whole number of things that you're going to set aside because you, like Paul, would say, you became dear to us. And loving people costs. But I would tell you this. It's worth it. When Paul looks towards the future, the day that he'll stand before Jesus and make an account for his life, in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 19, he says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? So here's the question that Paul asks. When I stand before Jesus, what will I give him as my life's work, as my crowning achievement, as the thing that mattered? He says, I'm not going to give them a cathedral because I didn't build one. They put my name on that after I died. So what's Paul going to give them? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul says, when I stand before Christ Jesus... The only thing I'll have to place in his hands are you. And I feel good standing before him on that day with that offer. It'll be worth it. It has been worth it. And I know this is a difficult transition for you. It's difficult for me. I'm excited about what the Lord is doing, but that doesn't mean it's not hard. But I believe if we're faithful to God's call, no matter what the cost, it's always worth it. And I'm confident standing before Christ someday and presenting you to Him. I want to thank you for honoring me with that, and I want to make a plea with you. My last act as your pastor. 
Don't turn back. Don't turn back. God has given you His Spirit. He's given you the Gospel. Jesus has been raised from the dead. The heavy lifting has been done. Now it's to us to take it. To embrace the call to make disciples, giving people the Word of God and us with all of our flaws. Because in the midst of that, the Spirit of God is at work. And it will always be worth it. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your goodness and grace to me and to our church family. I thank you for the six years in which you've allowed me to lead and shepherd these people. I thank you for the years to come as we will continue to be brothers. We pray that you would move mightily in our church, that you would help each of us to be steadfast and not turn back in this call to discipleship. Father, I pray for the man who will come and lead us, who will be our pastor, that you would be equipping him and his family right now for this ministry. We long to see what you will do, and we pray that you would empower us to live faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.